Well, I failed to mention uh, earlier in the announcements that uh, next week we are going to be looking at a new subject in Sunday school, and I hope and pray that you will join us. Uh, if you don't join us for Sunday school, uh, not only shame on you, but you can find the audio uh, online, uh, but this next uh, subject that we're going to tackle in Sunday school Uh, We're going to keep focusing on the life of Christ, and uh, the focus is going to be uh, Christ and the Spirit of God, or Christ and the Holy Spirit, uh, to show sort of the relationship and the connection that Scripture makes between Christ, His ministry, and the emphasis that the Bible makes on how the Holy Spirit is involved in the ministry of Christ, and so it is... Uh, I'm thinking already ahead because of my personal studies getting ready for this, but um, it's going to be a remarkable study, and I thought to myself, well, I had to pick the subject and the study that nobody writes about. Uh, I can't, I'm, I'm not overstating that, I'm not exaggerating. There really is nothing out there specifically written to show the relationship between Jesus and the Spirit in the ministry of Christ or in the Gospels, it is literally uh, uh, just a, a, a wasteland. There's a, there's a wilderness of uh, lack of information. I've looked high and low. And you guys know, I know my books. Uh, I can't find any books written on that subject. And so uh, we are going to be tackling some pretty, uh, some pretty uh, uh, new territory, apparently, <laughs> Uh, something that should be really interesting for all of us and hopefully very edifying to you. Also, just to recommend a book that I would recommend that maybe doesn't deal specifically with that subject, but a book that uh, I think we do have out on the table, maybe one copy, I don't know, Jai would know, and that's Michael Horton's book on the Holy Spirit. No, he's denied. I looked over to him for some support, and I just got rejected. So we'll have to get that, but we'll restock the bookstore. But that's a book you need to get uh, in your library. That's the book called Rediscovering the Holy Spirit by Michael Horton. I think it is uh, the uh, primary book on the Spirit today uh, that, that has been written as just a groundbreaking uh, work. Michael Horton has really knocked it out of the park. And I used to recommend Sinclair Ferguson's book on the Holy Spirit as like the go-to book uh, but I don't know. I think Michael Horton has given him a run for his money. So uh, get that book. It would be a good book for you to be reading during these next several weeks that we're going to be tackling the subject of the Holy Spirit and Christ in Sunday school. So with that, why don't you pray one more time with me, okay? Ask the Lord to bless our time together in His Word. Father, oh Lord, we come before You. We thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You that we have the mighty scriptures in our possession. Lord, without your word, we'd have no revelation from God, no light from your counsel, and we would be in darkness. But we thank you, God, that you have revealed these things to us. And in your word, you have given us such profound mysteries, mysteries of Christ, mysteries of the incarnation, mysteries about his divine condescension. All that you've done to redeem your people. And I pray, O God, that you would help us now just to look deeper into the implications of what is often celebrated as Christmas, but for us is the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus and his divine condescension. Lord, would you help us now? Would your spirit uh, illuminate our minds and increase our capacity? to be enriched in everything in Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen. Well, like I said, this message was really prepared last week. And let me tell you, as a preacher, there is nothing worse than preparing all week long for a message that you cannot preach. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's terrible. I don't know what I'd compare it to, but it's just, it's just terrible. It's kind of like, I guess, going to the hospital because you're in labor, and then you get there and they send you back home because you're not ready yet. <laughs> It's just you were ready to give birth to the baby, and then, uh, you know, you had to go back home. It's kind of like that, but it's given me more time to meditate even deeper on this subject, and there seems to be an emphasis even in our church 
Brother Brian's been preaching on the Incarnation in Sunday school, teaching us at least in Sunday school on this grand subject. And it is the subject that we're looking at today. And this text sort of brings home the ultimate implications of the Incarnation in terms of the condescension of Christ. And so today I want to focus our attention on this great book, 2 Corinthians, and this passage here in chapter 8. Now I preached the book 2 Corinthians some time ago. It took me a couple years to make it through that book. And uh, I still remember going through this sermon. And I didn't just pull out my old sermon to re-preach it to you. This is fresh manna. Uh, I had to... (laughs) I, I worked hard on this sermon. It wasn't just pulling it out of the toolbox. Because what I see here is nothing short of what I would call the indescribably glorious Christ. The indescribably glorious Christ. And remarkably, it's a passage on the condescension of Christ. So this is what I want to do. I want to focus on three aspects of this condescension of Christ. And this is the first point. You ready? Number one, the great and indescribably glorious condescension of Jesus Christ is rooted in the principle of grace. Now, our outline is very simple. It comes from the text. You see it there. Verse 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, right away, when we're thinking about the incarnation, when we're thinking about the condescension of Jesus coming down to us, being born, being incarnate, it all begins with the principle of grace. Now, Let's back up just a second because we have to be fair to the text. Where does this text come from? I know it's sort of a text that is written almost poetically. Through his poverty, you have become rich, right? Or that you might be made rich. But this text has a broader, specific, historical context. And the context is giving, meaning money financial giving in the church. And uh, if you just jump back to verse 1, you can see the context there that what Paul is talking about here, verse chapters, uh, chapter uh, 8 and chapter 9, is the, uh, the collection that the Apostle Paul went on to collect, financially collect money for the poor saints who were in Jerusalem and who desperately needed relief. Some call it the relief fund of the Apostle Paul. And therefore, uh, chapter 8 and 9 is where most uh, pastors will go to when they want to teach on financial giving, financial matters, I mean, fiscally uh, responsible and all these things, because there's so many principles that emerge out of these two chapters on giving. But notice uh, what is being said here. First, we're being given an example of the grace of God, same theme, found in the churches. It says, now, brethren, wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. So what is Paul saying? Paul's saying is that there is a group of churches, i.e. the Macedonian churches, who even in their poverty, we see their shining example of giving because they were poor, because they went beyond their means, and that's what he goes on to develop. And so what he's being emphasized here is the sacrifice of the Macedonian churches that's backed up now only by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the motivation or the sole motivation that the churches of Corinth would give with the same manner of liberality. In other words, it is an, it is an incentive for us to be generous when we think about two things, that there are poor believers that are giving more. And then beyond that, there is Christ and His condescension and the emphasis of His giving most. Uh, So much so that at the very end of this whole section in chapter 9 and verse 15, uh, uh, the Apostle Paul summarizes the entire uh, discourse on giving by saying, thank God for His indescribable gift. And that indescribable gift, of course, I believe is the gift of His Son. But it all begins with Grace. 
What does the divine condescension of Jesus tell us? It tells us that he was motivated, first and foremost, by grace. What is grace? Well, many people would describe grace as God's unmerited favor. But I tell you, brothers and sisters, that's only half of the story. Grace is not just God's unmerited favor. It's way beyond that. It means that God was motivated freely and sovereignly by His own will, His own goodness, His own benevolence, His own virtue, and, to, and therefore He freely poured out every spiritual blessing upon those who were not only unworthy of His grace, but who were in fact in the red. In other words, it's not, the grace of God is not just for people who don't deserve it. The grace of God is for people who deserve the complete opposite of grace, which is the wrath and judgment and hell of God. In other words, the grace of God comes and gives us everything when we owe Him everything, and we are unable to pay it. The grace of God is for the doctrine of total inability. Total inability is the doctrine that the Reformers taught to stress the fact that man is not just sinful. The the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden resulted not just in a sinful humanity condemned under their federal head, but now because of that sin, humanity is also incapable of remedying their condition. They are totally unable. Like Jesus said, he who sins is a what? Slave of sin. You cannot free yourself. That is what depravity is really all about. To understand the grace of God, however, to understand the grace that has come to us in the incarnation of Christ, which is just a a, a stepping stone to the gospel, we need to look at this this issue here of demerit. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, please. Because I don't think unless we go to Romans 5 to really capture the true essence and nature of grace, because as when Paul says, we have received reconciliation, we need to understand who are we? Who is the we? And it takes verses 6 through 10 to tell us that. Look at this. Romans 5, beginning in verse 6, says, While we were still helpless, and the word helpless there literally means without power, without strength. When we were powerless, is another way we could say this. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And so not only are we powerless, but in our powerless, impotent state, We are also devoid of God. This is an intense language by Paul. For one would hardly die for a righteous man. That happens from time to time, doesn't it? You see it in the news. Somebody died trying to save somebody that was essentially good. Maybe their child. Maybe uh, somebody in a bad situation. Maybe you try to stop a robbery. You saw uh, a, a person being robbed or... Maybe somebody who's trapped in a burning car and a good Samaritan goes over and helps them out and dies trying to help and rescue that person. Those moments are rare. But, he says here, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare to die, but God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners... And so not only are we powerless, not only are we devoid of God, but positively speaking, we are also sinners. In other words, we are transgressors who have broken His law. That is who grace comes for. Sinners. What did Jesus say? I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while uh, we were, watch this now, enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, so not only are we transgressors of God's law, but our transgressions have now resulted in an inevitable hostility and enmity with God very scary. It's one thing to be 
an enemy of God, but it's another thing for God to be your enemy. And that is precisely where sinful man is outside of Christ. You see, it's not just you're not being nice to God. It's not just that you are offending God. It's not just that you hate Him, but in essence, He is your enemy in this hostility that exists between you, and that is not a good situation to be in. We were reconciled even though we were enemies through the death of His Son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we, now we know who we are, we have received the reconciliation. By God's grace, our condition of inability was overcome. Our nature as sinners was liberated and our posture as enemies was forgiven. That's what grace really is. So when Christ comes, He comes with that grace. And having a knowledge of our wretched condition, that only magnifies how glorious Jesus' condescension really is. From a covenantal framework, Jesus made a pact with the Father to save and redeem Adam's race through the bestowal of His righteousness and and obedience upon a humanity that was chosen for Him by the Father in His eternal wisdom. That is what the grace of God is all about. It's a lot deeper than what we typically just think of as grace. The, The other thing is this, that this condescension is also manifested in the Incarnation. The Incarnation is the entry point of this condescension. I I would say only the cross can really said to be greater than the act of condescension of the Incarnation. Really, they are inseparable. The reason He came was to go to the cross. The reason He's on the cross is because He came incarnate. To fully understand the gravity of the Incarnation and how it informs its condescension, we need to go where Paul goes which is to Jesus' eternal pre-existence or His eternal pre-existence, the realm of His triune glory and riches because that is what condescension is all about. Even as we heard in Sunday school, the laying aside of His divine prerogatives, the laying aside of His glory, that's what condescension is all about. Of course, what made this state of Jesus' existence truly glorious was not just that He was the Creator and the owner of untold worlds, angelic hosts, but that He was in the place of the highest divine repose and communion with the Father. I think we miss that. I think when we think about the condescension, the laying aside. I think when we think about Christ coming down into this world, we misunderstand that part of the riches, because what does the text say? It says, though, even though being rich, which is just a, a poetic way of, of saying and trying to describe the undescribable glory of Jesus Christ that He forfeited temporarily, upon condition of payment with His blood. And what He gave up was much more than the glitter and the glory and, the, and, the, and the, the splendor and the majesty of a heavenly kingdom. More than that, brothers and sisters, what He gave up was that perfect, intimate communion with His Father in the presence of His Father. And I know that right there and then you're already thinking Trinitarianly, trying to wrap your brain around, wait a minute, what does that do violence to the Trinity? No, not at all. Not at all. He was always ontologically with the Father, one with the Father, so that Jesus can even say, I am not alone, the Father is with me. But in terms of His perfect communion, that total optimum joy, that divine reciprocity between Father and Son, that is something He wanted to go back to. He wanted to go back into that habitation of perfect glory where He was eternally the delight of the Father. Turn with me in your Bibles to one text, John 17, just to see this. 
because he spoke about this reciprocal relationship of love and joy between father and son as the supreme quality of life that believers may themselves take part in by faith. See, this is something the unbeliever can never grasp. Never. No matter how much you try to wrap your brain around Christianity, unless you are illuminated by the Spirit of God to come to understand the love of God, you will never understand what's the big deal between God and the Father and the Son, and what's the big deal? It's because of this. We cannot comprehend, even for a moment, that intimate relationship. You know, I think if you're a parent, I think you have an advantage. You can kind of understand this. When your child becomes the object of your joy and your affection, and you want nothing more but just to be in the presence of the joy of your child, and your child wants nothing more but to be in the purity of the affirmation and adoration of his parent. That bond that exists is but an infinitesimal sort of metaphor to what is reverberated throughout all of eternity, the depth of that love that existed between Father and Son and that Jesus talks about right here in John chapter 17. Beginning in verse 22, listen to what he says. He says, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. Wow, what is that glory? Well, I would suggest to you the glory is the glory of vindication, the glory of heaven, the glory of reward, the glory of eternal life, that they may be one just as we are one, that that mystical union that exists between believers comes from ultimately that spiritual union between the Godhead I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you have loved me. So when Jesus is thinking about ultimate reality, highest glory, the ultimate aim and goal of all existence, This is the language that he couches it in. These are the thoughts upon his heart and mind. That there is nothing greater that you, Father, love me. Father, he says, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. It's like, John, could you make these constructions any more difficult? (laughs) These are complex. You know why? I told you this before. Because when the authors of Scripture word these things like this, just choppy, you and me and I, and what's it trying to do? It's trying to take up your entire afternoon to meditate on this. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to get you to go bit by bit by bit by bit so that you understand the truly profound enormity of what is being said. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. The divine condescension of Jesus Christ means he comes from the habitation of love. God is love. Love is the realm, the affection, the reality in which God lives We can't, in our fallen, flawed, finite humanness, we can't fathom that. Difficult for us to fathom that. But like I said, like the indescribable affection that a father or mother feels for their child, that to an infinite degree, the love of the father literally reverberating throughout all eternity, the corridors of endless ages where it filled the entirety of Trinitarian existence and relationship. That is just the way it is. That's the way that it is. Jesus loved for all eternity as the eternal Son of God to live in that sense of security and safety and satisfaction, dwelling in the presence and approval of His Father. So when Jesus is called the Beloved, 
What he means is that he is the object of infinite love, the infinite love of his Father. He left all that aside. Isn't that remarkable? When we are here at the height, at the pinnacles, when we are in the ivory towers of divine celestial love, and now to think about utter and total condescension, it almost takes your breath away of what Jesus, in his condescension, gave up. Because, the Apostle Paul says, though he was rich. Now, there's rich people in the world. Um, you know, Tricia has a very wealthy aunt. Very wealthy. I don't know a wealthier person than this. Hope she doesn't hear the audio because I don't know. You know. But I found it utterly ironic. Can I tell you guys about this? She lives at the Ritz-Carlton. We went and visited her. And I thought, this is so ironic. We're at the Ritz-Carlton. Everyone in there is either a millionaire or a billionaire. You can't even be there if you're not. And we walk into the lobby of the, uh, the, the, the hotel slash condo place, whatever. People live, I mean, people live here. Anyway. So we walk in, and there the paramedics are working on an older gentleman, a residence of the Ritz-Carlton. I thought, oh boy, look at that. And so immediately in my mind was, wow, look at that. All the riches in the world, right? All the money in the world. All the money anybody could ever want in the world. That guy's probably a billionaire. And there he is with some paramedics attending to him because he's having heart problems in the lobby of the hotel. All that wealth didn't, can't save him, can't do anything for him. We go into the, um, we go into the, uh, the, the elevator because the elevator drops you off on their floor right in front of their door and the door of their neighbor. And uh, it's really opulent, you know. And out comes one of her neighbors, and she starts talking. Well, Trish starts talking. You know that. Trish starts immediately talking. And uh, surprise, surprise, Trish is talking to a total stranger. <clears throat> we get into this conversation, and before long, she tells us that she just got over cancer. <laughs> this guy's down there dying. She lives up here. I mean, this condo, whatever, I think it lists for like $7 million just to live there, and she just got over cancer, <laughs> okay, um, and then we go and meet with Trisha's aunt, and she's battling cancer. I thought, we are surrounded by a defective world, <laughs> certainly. I mean, if it can affect the world's top richest people in the world. No wonder all these wealthy, exuberantly wealthy futurists and technocrats are all seeking for some sort of nanotechnology to give them eternal life because they know as wealthy as they are, they are dying. They are dying. Just like the preacher said in Ecclesiastes, a rich man dies just like a dog. It don't matter. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath. But Jesus' riches are different because Jesus' riches are unfading. Jesus' riches do not fail. Jesus' riches refer to an eternal kingdom. That's why Jesus, as he's thinking about and contemplating in John chapter 17, verse 5, contemplating the eminency of the cross, the very thing on his mind is, oh, I long to go back to the place that I had with you in your glory. Because he knows that's the only place that doesn't fade away. That's the only place where everything that's good in the world lasts. Here, it'll last. Right? I mean, right now, I know, that's how I feel when I run into that kind of thing. I mean, right now, Trish, Eden... You know, as cute as she is and as nice as the house is clean and, and everything is going, they just give the cold back to each other right now. It's hilarious. It's like watching ping pong. It's like back and forth, back and forth. Oh, you getting a little bit. Oh, no, she'll, she'll get you sick again. Don't worry about it. Oh, you getting better. Oh, she'll get you sick. Don't worry about it. It's awful. It's like misery. That doesn't happen in Christ's kingdom. Only in the eternal kingdom of God will the flesh no longer inhibit the joy. Heaven is where Jesus 
As Kent Hughes says, heaven is the place where Jesus could hold a white hot star in his hand. This is what he left. He left the prerogative of that use of that power and wisdom and knowledge and divinity. He left the use of that for what? For a manger. You know what's incredible to me? At one of the most emotional moments in Israel, when we were in Israel, we were ascending up a um, the hill there overlooking the valley of Megiddo, like Armageddon. So we're overlooking the valley of Armageddon and we're going into a palace that was slated to be Sol- one, of, one of Solomon's palaces where he had, he had a stable of horses and whatnot. It's remarkable. And I'm walking there, you know, not even looking for this. I look down, and I see this little stone box. It just looked like a nothing, unassuming, nothing to look at. You know, there's giant Roman pillars and all this amazing, you know, uh, sort of archaeology. Well, there's this little stone box at, the, at my feet. I look down, and I look over at the little sign that's next to it, and guess what it says? Manger manger. I thought, wow, as I looked up to heaven, I looked at the sky, I looked at the valley, I looked at the, gra- the grandeur of where we were, I thought, the king of the universe laid in something like that. And this isn't a king's palace. That's not where he laid. He laid at the inn, right? Not even in the inn because there's no room in the inn, but he went into the stable to go lay in a manger, and he's the king of the universe. And I just saw, and it's like that manger just dropped down in there. And I thought, the king, the lord of all the universe was laid in something like that. Truly, we do not understand the wonder of the condescension of Jesus Christ. And why he is so absolutely indescribably glorious. Colossians chapter 1 Verse 15 reminds us that not only is He the image of God, He is the firstborn of all creation, which means ultimately that He is preeminent above every other created thing. For Not other in terms of He's a created thing, but all created things. Verse 16, For by Him all things were created. Be careful there because the Jehovah Witnesses insert the word other. All other things were created. The point is, is that Jesus also is created, which is false. That's not what the Greek text says. It simply says, by him all things are created, both in the heavens, the earth, visible, invisible. Let me ask you a question. When you think of created invisible things, what do you think about? What do you think about when you think about created invisible things uh spirits souls angels maybe i what is it you know what i thought about laws the law of gravity is invisible but you want to know if it's true or not you just go out into a cliff and look down at the bottom and you you test the law of gravity find out really quick it's a law (laughs) i fall i die Physics, logic, mathematics. What about the laws that are operating in heaven? What about those laws? You say, I don't know anything about those laws. Yeah, neither do I. But he does. He created them. Heaven operates the way that he does. I don't know if we're going to be able to fly. I don't know what you imagine of in terms of how you're going to fly through the sky like Superman. I don't know. Soar through untold worlds and galaxies, and you know, here we go, Star Trek. I don't know. But I know that some have theorized that in heaven, the laws of physics that pertain to the temporal world and universe in this system may not apply. They may be transcended. Perhaps it will work that color is not only seen, but felt. I don't know. 
But one thing knows for sure is that God created all to function the way that it does, and Christ is the one that upholds, according to this, He upholds everything together. That's who He is. That's His divine prerogative. Now, we thought, we, we were talking about the kenosis theory in Sunday school, and I just want to touch on this for a little bit because condescension is all about Jesus coming down, taking upon humanity, and laying aside, as some would say, the independent use of his divine attributes or something like that. For theologians stay, say it in different ways. But what's, what should be the most remarkable thing, brothers and sisters, about that Philippians text? Here, let's turn there just for a second. I know we looked at it in Sunday school, but Brian stole my thunder, but that's okay. He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And I think what we taught in Sunday school was right. It's not that Jesus came in order to prove his deity. That wasn't the whole emphasis. That wasn't why he came. That's not the point. It says, but he emptied himself. And then it says, taking the form of a slave. That's the literal <clears throat> translation. Taking the form of a slave. Of a slave. Now, the word taking, if you have that in your Bible, which I hope you do, because that's very accurate, lambano is the Greek word taking, and lambano is the participle that is used, and here it is used instrumentally or as a participle of means. What does that mean? What that means is that his kenosis is understood by means of what he took. See, we struggle with the emptying part in the negative, we struggle with, well, what do you mean he laid it aside? Because our minds, in our finite understanding, it is difficult for us to see how he could, if he is God, how he can divest himself of anything if he is God. How can he divest himself of anything without doing violence to the deity of Christ? Well, thankfully, the text emphasizes more what he took than what he divested. So what it's saying is he emptied himself by means of taking the form of a slave. You see, what should impress us more in this whole controversy, this whole entire controversy of the kenosis theory of the emptying is not simply what he did in terms of laying aside, and, but what he took on in terms of his humility. Herman Ritterboss points out, he says, the heights of such power is qualified only by the depths of his self-denial. The power of Christ to create Colossians. But the power of Christ that he exhibited in John 10 when he says, no one takes my life away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay down my life and I have the authority to take up my life again. This command I received from my Father. That is truly, truly remarkable. What's the last point? The last point is that this condescension is applied in the work of redemption. Let's read the text again if you go back to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It says here, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though He was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. There are two all-important prepositional phrases in the text, and that is, for your sake and through his poverty. That's redemption. That is the language of redemption. That is the language of Jesus coming as our mediator. It's, he's not only our mediator, but he's also our guarantor. In other words, he is the guarantee and the surety of what is at stake here. Namely, the fact that Jesus is not only the mediator of a new covenant, but he is also the guarantee of an eternal kingdom for his people. That's what's going on. That's what's going on. That's why Paul says earlier in the letter, he who, he was made, excuse me, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. 
so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So as our substitute, He stands in our place. He stands in our stead. He does what He does as our substitute. As our surety, He ensures that we will inherit His eternal kingdom. The kingdom that was afforded to Him. He is the one who will give us all things. Romans chapter 8, verse 32 says, He did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all. How will He not with Him freely give us all things? All things are the riches. The riches of His grace. The riches of eternal life. The riches that we ought to be living for. These are the riches that we need to be living for, brothers and sisters. It changes all of your perspective if you really truly believe that you're placed on this earth not to accumulate earthly wealth, not to pursue earthly material possessions. We are so deceived by this. We are so inoculated to thinking this way because of our culture, because of our upbringing. We begin to prize the physical things all around us when in reality God wants to give us the kingdom and liberate us today to live for the true riches. What is true riches indeed? Amen? One last thing. The wealth of Christ is not just for us to know. It's not just for us to enjoy. Brothers and sisters, listen to this. The wealth of Christ, if I can do a spin on words here, is also a personal stewardship. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Even though I am the least of all the saints, to me the grace was given to do what? To preach the unfathomable riches of Christ. The wealth that we have, brothers and sisters, is meant to be proferred and to be offered to the world. Isn't it remarkable? Turn in your Bibles with me quickly to Revelation chapter 3. The riches of Christ is not something that man can obtain on his own. The riches of Christ is not something that man can gain by any sort of human commerce whatsoever. Humanity needs Gospel gold, not earthly gold. Revelation chapter 3, verse 18, this is what the riches of Christ are. Listen to Christ speak of it Himself. He says, I advise you to buy from Me gold. I love that language. Because what Jesus is saying is, we need to do business. (laughs) We need it. There's a transaction that needs to take place Oh, human, oh, person, oh, man, oh, woman, oh, child, oh, boy, oh, girl, oh, humanity, there is a transaction that desperately needs to happen if you are going to live. And he says, buy from me. We're so busy buying from Apple and Google, and then they take all our information and sell it to China. We're so busy buying things for ourselves and Christmas gifts and, you know, all this. Jesus says, buy from me gold refined by fire, the fire of affliction, the fire of judgment, the fire of holiness, the fire of the cross. This is true wealth we're talking about. You can't lose it. So that, same thought as Paul, here we go. Pauline theology and revelation, you might become rich. Wow. You want to be rich? You're not going to find it at the stock market. You want to be rich? You're not going to find it in real estate. You want to be rich? You're not going to find it at climbing the corporate ladder. You want to be rich? Rich is only rich when your riches cannot be taken away. That's when you're rich. And that's why, um, oh, his name escapes me at the moment. Jim Elliott, he's no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. 
many people are trying to keep what they are sure to lose. He says, buy from me gold and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. What is the shame of your nakedness? Sin, depravity, guilt, condemnation. But there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ and clothed with the garments of His righteousness. There is no shame. remember talking to a sister. My wife and I were talking to a sister. She was weeping over her sin, and this was her thought. It's a provocative thought. I don't know if you thought about this, but she thought, well, the Bible says in heaven everything will be revealed. Everything. And she was overcome by the thought of the shame, the guilt, my shame, my filth, and my sin is going to be revealed for everyone to see. And she couldn't get over that. And I said, Sister, He's going to cover your shame. So whatever He reveals, it's not going to last because your shame will be taken away. And there is no condemnation. There's no condemnation. In Christ. But also, and maybe most critical for so many people, I salve. To anoint your eyes so that you may see. This metaphor, this example, this application, this illustration is very simple for me. You know why? At my home right now, there are about 10,000 ointments and oils and things and Sprouts and whole foods and everything to try to cure anything and everything. You need a doctor? Come to my house. I got every remedy for everything in the world right now. And it's some natural, you know, it's like, do they really work? I don't know. We got about 50 of them now. Maybe they're not working anyway. I don't want to crush her little organic heart. That's how we all are, I know. Jesus gives us anoint, anointing oil, eye salve here that does work to anoint our eyes so that we may see the kingdom. Very powerful people in this world. Very smart people. Brilliant people even. They're very religious people. There are people who have a lot of wisdom, insight. I tell you what, I have been so, I'm telling you, something's coming on common grace out of me because I'm seeing it everywhere that you can from unbelievers who are devoid of God get a lot of really good counsel wisdom Uh, they can tell you how to do a lot of good things in life they can tell you how to manage your home probably better than you're managing it right now they can tell you how to manage your finances. They can tell you how to have, be healthy. They can tell you how to work out. They can tell you how to fix your car. They can tell you how to, you know, what doctor you need. They can tell you what neighborhood to live in. They can tell you all sorts of things, economics. But they are blind to see the kingdom. Nicodemus was such a man. Nicodemus, people would think he can see a lot. Nicodemus, smart guy, he sits on the Sanhedrin, he's a religious man, he's studied in the law, he's probably a scholar, he's very astute, very respected in the community, and yet he was stone cold blind. Because Jesus said, ye must be born again, Nicodemus, I don't care who you are, I don't care what you know, if you're not born again, you will not see. So, the greatest gift that God ever gave was His Son. And through Him, through His poverty, He gives us the gold of the kingdom, brothers and sisters. He gives us the gold of garments of righteousness to really cover our shame. And He gives us salve to grant us the ability to see wonderful things from God's law. His kingdom and the great and indescribably glorious condescension of Jesus Christ. That is what we need to see every Christmas. By the way, Christmas is about Christ. Maybe we can debate this later. 
But culturally speaking, we need to hold on to that. Did I tell you what happened in my neighborhood? Not time for this. I drove my neighborhood a couple years ago, and I thought, oh, look, Christmas lights are already up. Those are nice. And I thought, wait a minute, that's kind of weird. Why are they all doing the same thing with the lights and blah, blah, blah? Turns out it's not Christmas at all. It's actually a Hindu pagan holiday. My entire neighborhood was decked out in a Hindu holiday. I thought, wow, times are a-changing. Now we can laugh at that. Oh, this happened too. I didn't know this. Maybe you, some of you know this, but one of the him, Hindu uh, symbols of prosperity uh, is a swastika. You know this? I didn't know this. I drove by my neighbor's house. I looked over. They painted a big giant swastika on their front door. I stopped the truck. I was like, huh? And other people were stopping like, what in the world? I knocked on the door. You know, you guys know me. I knocked on the door. I was like, we got to talk. So it turns out they didn't answer the door. Thankfully, I don't know for who, but thankfully. We are losing, through multiculturalism, we are losing what little vestiges and remnants there are of the Judeo-Christian tradition. And brothers and sisters, I believe that through common grace, God has used Christianity in America for centuries. But we're losing that. And, and what's going on with the rise of paganism is that we are beginning to, as a culture, snuff out, okay, it's kind of corny to say the true meaning of Christmas, but what happens if we completely obliterate Christmas from the culture altogether? You know, in a sense, I don't want that. Uh, I, I personally uh, don't hold the position that Christmas is a paganly rooted holiday. I got brothers that come into my house. You got a Christmas tree? You know, come on, man. Yeah, I, I love Christmas. Sorry, I can't hide it. Um, Peter Hammond, actually, historic, historian, has done remarkable work showing how Christmas is not rooted in paganism. It's actually rooted in church history. But anyway, like I said, that's a debate for another time. But um, I hope that just looking at this has really caused us to appreciate uh, the incarnation and the condescension of Jesus for what it is. Let's pray, ask God to give us that same vision all year long. Father, Lord, we cannot, in the time that is allotted to us, we cannot even begin to estimate.